Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Brownsbridge Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Brownsbridge Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out more information about Brownsbridge Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. wrapping up a series today called Once Upon a Land. And if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I want to kind of give you an idea of where we've been and where we're headed. Um, we've been talking about this idea that uh, sometimes it's uh, somewhat easy to look at the Bible as a fairy tale because uh, fairy tales have three, uh, they start once upon a time and then they have three components. They have interesting characters and supernatural stories and then a moral of the story, some important life lesson you're supposed to take away. And the Bible has those same things. They have interesting characters. They have supernatural events. And then of course, important life lessons. There's a moral of the story that you're supposed to take away. And so if you're here today and you're not a church person and you would say, yeah, I just kind of think it's all a fairy tale. We don't blame you. We actually see why you might Think that, but the one big difference is where fairy tales take place once upon a time, the Bible takes place once upon a land. There is a physical location where these events documented in the Old Testament and the New Testament took place. And so during this series, we are going to those places, looking at specific places from the New Testament um, in uh, Israel, modern day Israel is known as Palestine in the first century. And so you may hear me use those words interchangeably. And uh, my wife and I got to go on a trip a little over a year ago and it had such an impact on us. And I've been following Jesus for uh, 30 years and uh, to be there in the spots where some of these things took place was truly, truly impactful. And I'm hoping that this series will have a similar impact on you, And my hope is that seeing the real places will make it more real to you. And if you're not a Christian that you would consider or maybe reconsider, what would your life look like if the events captured in our New Testament are true and they're real? And our hope in this series is to go to the land because with the land, you can actually check the integrity of the story. There's a, a number of different things around the location that you can look at to, to, to check and see, hey, did, did this actually take place then? Was it written then? Now, nowadays this doesn't apply so much because we have access to so much information with the internet and libraries. I mean, we can make up a story today very, very easily. In the first century, when none of this was available, it was very, very hard to get these facts right in a number of different categories as well. Last week, we talked about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. And uh, for uh, the culture at that time, the time of Jesus, it was um, very much centered around the temple because um, Israel was a Jewish country at that time and the followers of Jesus and what we have in the New Testament writings, they were written by Jewish people. And so you see a lot of details of temple life throughout the New Testament. This is important because the temple went away in 70 AD And uh, therefore, there was no more temple life after 70 AD. So uh, how do you explain the detail around the temple life? It was either someone who was there or someone who interviewed someone who was there. This puts the writing before 70 AD. So that's important because at that time, there still would have been eyewitnesses that were living at the time that Jesus died and rose again. Eyewitnesses that saw it firsthand and that could confirm what happened. Think about it this way. 
Um, if someone came up to you today and said, oh, I just really enjoyed the 1996 Olympics. It was amazing. We flew down to Miami to experience the Olympics. It was great. They had it down there in the sun and the palm trees and the heat. And it really was just a great Olympic Games. You would be like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> the, the Olympics in 1996 were not in Miami. Where were they? The, the city of Atlanta, I think is the way you gotta say it from when that guy announced it. But yeah, we all know that because we experienced it firsthand. And that was about 30 years ago. And 30 years after the time of Christ, there was already a vast number of people that believed Jesus was the Christ, followers of Jesus in Rome, thousands of miles away from Palestine. We see this in their writings. This is part of the historical nature of being able to fact check the New Testament. In ancient Roman writings, they talk about this vast number of Christians in the 50s. And here's, here's the important thing about that. Uh, someone could have easily traveled to Palestine and come back and said, hey, no, 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 listen, I, I went there and I met his friends and I met his family and Jesus is not whoever you think he is. In fact, they showed me his tomb and he's still in the tomb. And then there's no way that that story, that superstition makes its way out of the first century. There's so many different things about the land that help reiterate the story and they show the integrity of it. Today, we're gonna spend some time looking specifically at geography. Some of you all are like, okay, I'm ready to check out now. No, it's not gonna be more. I'm gonna try to make this as interesting as possible. But I, I said week one that the, the authors of the New Testament, they included a lot of details around geography that you just wouldn't have unless you lived in the land. I talked about how they always wrote that they were going up to Jerusalem or they were going down to Jericho or down to Samaria. Even though they were traveling due north, they called it as going down to Samaria. And even though they were traveling south, they were going up to Jerusalem. They were describing their actual experience. They weren't looking at a map and figuring out how can we tell people that we were going from point A to point B. They were just describing what they were experiencing firsthand. And there's an incredible amount of detail around geography in the New Testament. There's cities, there's bodies of water, there's mountains and valleys that are mentioned that again, you would have to experience firsthand. And so many of these areas they mention just in a word, they mention just a phrase, and it really means nothing to us. For instance, in Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, he writes this. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now we read this, and it really doesn't mean anything to our audience today. But at the time of Jesus, and the audience that Matthew is writing right here, this would have had so much context to it that Matthew doesn't even need to mention because it goes without being said. There's so much in our lives that goes without being said. We use individual words or phrases that we don't have to unpack because we already know what each other means when we, says it. when we say it. Think about it this way. If, if someone comes up to you and they say they're going out to dinner and they're like, hey, you know, we're gonna go out you know, to Avalon or Halcyon or the Collection. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they mention that to you. They don't need to say anything else. They don't need to explain it. They can just say, hey, we're, we're gonna go to Halcyon and get dinner. And you know exactly what they mean. You know exactly where they're going. But a thousand years from now, 2000 years from now, somebody's reading our journal and we wrote in it, yeah, I hopped on Georgia 400 and went to Halcyon. They'd be like, what in the world is Halcyon? And what is Georgia 400 that they hopped on? Like, what, what is that? Again, these are, these are all phrases that we know and understand. And there's so much that goes without being said when we, said, when we say them, we understand each other. Same thing for Matthew's audience in the first century. 
Caesarea Philippi means nothing to us, but to them, there is so much context around it. I wanna dive into this today and give us a little bit of context around this. So we're gonna start here as we've done every single week here at Browns Ridge Church. We're gonna zoom out and we're gonna go on a uh, plane flight, about a nine hour plane flight. Hopefully we get upgraded to Comfort Plus or Delta One, you know, and we get some sleep on the flight. And we arrive in modern day Israel. We land in Tel Aviv, which is right here on the coast. And uh, if you want uh, some more geography lessons, uh, last couple of weeks, we've touched on a lot of different things about this land, about the importance of this land. I would encourage you to go back and watch. Uh, week one, we were right here on the Sea of, the sea of Galilee um, and looking at Capernaum, the city that Jesus lived in and several other uh, New Testament uh, people lived there as well. Last week, we were just west of the Dead Sea over here in Jerusalem in the south part of Israel. And today we are going all the way to the northern part of Israel, right on the border of Lebanon up here and Syria over here to the right. And this is at the base of a a pretty big mountain. It's a snow-capped mountain most of the year. It's called Mount Hermon. And in 333 BC, Alexander the Great was going through this territory. He was on his conquest and he was conquering different lands. And he comes through and he conquers this land and his, his soldiers were going up some of these valleys, these, uh, these rifts that come off the bottom of the mountain. And they were uh, huge rock faces. It looks pretty green from here, but when you look from the side, you see a lot of rock faces. And as he was going up one of these rifts, uh, he looks into uh, the valley and sees this in the rock face. So giant cave, and you can't really tell how big this is, um, but it's about 30 feet high. If you had walked in the front of our building today, it's about the size of our atrium, big circular atrium that you walked in this morning. And you'll see that there's water in it. Uh, In the first century, water in in ancient times, water at some points uh, would be flowing like a river out of this cave. Sometimes it was just a stream. It was kind of a random thing as to when the water was gonna gush forth from this cave. And in the ancient world, uh, water was always associated with the divine. If there was a water source, it was kind of considered, okay, one of the gods must be happy with us. And so they must be located here and they're giving us water. So because of the beauty of this area and because of the divine nature of it being a spring, a source of water, uh, they considered this divine. And I think we have another shot of this right here. This is again, modern day. They've redirected the water source from the cave in modern times. So no water flows out of it anymore. But Alexander the Great comes uh, through this area. They see this water source. They obviously start to camp there. And when when he came into this area, he not only brought soldiers, he brought what? He brought Greek culture, right? He brought his culture with him. When they kind of took over, it was like, hey, we want things the way we want them. And so he brought the culture with him. And when you were in high school, you studied um, you know, Greek culture, maybe in, in grade school or in high school. Um, what did you, uh, what was famous about Greek culture? Yeros, is that what you? <laughs> mythology, right? Greek mythology, the Greek gods, Hermes and Nike and Zeus. Alexander the Great brought all of that Greek mythology into this area. And because they considered this area divine, it became a center of worship to all the Greek gods. In fact, they named this city uh, after the Greek god Pan. Greek god Pan was the, the god of, of the wild, the god of chaos. It's where we get our word panic or pandemonium. And so he ends up naming this place 
Panias, after the Greek god Pan. And from 300 BC until today, if you go there today, it will be known in Greek as Panias. And the Hebrew translation of that is Banyas. So it's been known as that all of history, except for when Jesus walked the earth. In about 4 BC, uh, Herod the Great had a son named Philip who took over this area. He was ruling in this area and he renamed the city. He renamed it with a double name. He wanted to pay homage to Caesar. So that's where he got Caesarea. And then he wanted to pay homage to himself. His name was Philip. He was a really humble guy, apparently. So he named it Caesarea Philippi. And it had that name from about 4 BC until 60 BC when it was renamed after Nero for just a couple years. And then it went back to being called Panias or Banyas ever since, which that's another interesting thing you look into. How did they get the name right? If they were writing the scripture accounts a hundred years after the time of Christ, they would have called this place Panias. So that's a little bit of the background on this. So it became this center of, of Greek worship. In fact, the, the cave itself, they kept diving down to the bottom to see if they could find the bottom of the cave. They never could find it. So they, they end up um, kind of coming to the, the conclusion that, oh, this, this must be an opening to the underworld. This is the gates to the underworld. And who was the Greek God of the underworld? Hades. So they nicknamed this cave right here, the gates of Hades. And during the years that followed, they built temples and they put up statues and put up idols and it became this melting pot of pagan worship. Everybody had a spot. Everybody had a spot. In fact, there's some renderings of what it would have looked like in Jesus's time, based on historical documents and based on some of the excavations um, in that area. This would be a temple to the Caesar Augustus at the time. This is the sanctuary of Pan. And this big cutout in the rock, they would have had a big tall statue of the Greek god Pan. He looks like, um, uh, he's got these goat legs and then a human body. He looks like Mr. Tumnus from Chronicles of Narnia. If you've ever seen that, they, they would have had a statue of Mr. Tumnus right here. So this was the sanctuary to Pan. This was the temple of Zeus. Um, over here, they had uh, the temple of the sacred goats. So even the goats had a place where they could be worshiped. And when the goats died, they would put them in the tomb of the sacred goats, uh, which was right here against the wall. So just think for just a second. Think about this. Jesus brings his disciples here. All of Jesus's disciples were Jewish. They all had um, uh, one thing that set ancient Judaism apart from every other belief in the world at that time was they were monotheistic. They believed in one God. They had a prayer that they would pray every single morning called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had one God. He was the creator of everything. Again, every other culture, every other religion was like multiple gods, like, you know, one for this, one for that, one for this. And so when Jesus shows up and brings them here, this would have been a slap in the face. And I imagine some of them would have felt guilty or felt dirty. It would have been one of those moments that uh, I, I'm sure you had this at some point in your life. Some of us in the room probably did. You could tell the story about it of when in high school or college that you went to that party or you went to that thing and, and you knew you were like, I shouldn't be here. Like inside that voice in your head's like, I shouldn't be here. And you said to yourself, if my mom finds out I'm here, I am dead, you know? Don't have to worry about any other parties because I will not be here to experience them, you know? 
That's what was going through their mind in this moment. For Peter and James and John and Simon, they're thinking to themselves, goodness, if my mama finds out that I'm up here at Caesarea Philippi, like, but I'm, I'm following Jesus, like Jesus brought us out here. I, I was trying to think of a modern day example. And the, the closest thing I could think is if Jesus took us all right now and said, hey, come follow me and like took us to the strip in Vegas and like sat us down and was like, let me teach you some lessons. He'd be like, Jesus, why did you bring us here? I feel a little awkward right now. Some of us in the room are like, I actually really like Vegas, but you know, Vegas and Jesus at the same time. I don't know about that. The other thing to consider is that this was about a three or four day walk from Capernaum. Again, on the North shore of the Sea of Galilee, if that's where they walked from. If they walked from Jerusalem, it was probably a five or a six day walk. And this is no easy walk. When you drive in the land from Capernaum, you know, it's just up and down these mountains the whole way and rocky. It's not like there's an easy path. That means that Jesus was being real intentional. It wasn't like he just thought of this one day and, and said, oh, we can just have this lesson right now. He wasn't randomly choosing a location. It was a three or four day walk. And so they get up there and their legs are sore and their feet are sore. And they're in this place that again is like, they don't, can I even, can I look at this? I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here. They're probably wondering why in the world, Jesus, have you brought us to this place? But Jesus has a specific point that he wants to drive home with his disciples. And it's an important one for us to see today. So with all of that backdrop, all of that backdrop, when Matthew says Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, that is what goes without being said. That is what they would have known. His original audience, when they read this, they immediately would have had a picture of all those temples, that Gentile area, all the pagan worship. And Jesus brings them there and he ends up asking his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Again, it's so important where he's asking this. If he's in Jerusalem at the temple and he says, who do people say the son of man is? They would have been able to easily answer it. The son of man was an idea that was specifically Jewish. The Old Testament talks again and again about this human figure that will come and rescue us. They called him the son of man. So when Jesus says, who do people, just kind of left it out in the open. Who do people say that I am? And he's sitting in front of all these temples to all these different gods. It must have made the disciples uncomfortable. They, they might've been frustrated. It, it might've drawn out significant emotion in them. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like he, people here, they don't, they don't talk about the son of man at all. If you're talking about these people, they don't even, they don't even care. They're just kind of firing away at every God they can possibly think of. But then, you know, as they probably felt like they needed to answer the question, they start reeling off what people would have said if they were down in Judea, down in Jerusalem. They said, well, you know, John the Baptist, some people said that John the Baptist was the son of man. Uh, some people said Elijah, uh, some people said Jeremiah. Some people said one of the prophets, you know, that's come, you know, at some point was the son of man. And as they're kind of wrestling with trying to get the right answer and they're speculating, okay, there's all this speculation around who the son of man is. They're reeling off all these names. Jesus ends up directing it to them. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? So he zooms in from this, okay, just kind of the category of people to, no, my 12 disciples, you guys sitting with me right now. And not who do you say the son of man is, this theoretical idea from the Old Testament that's been talked about in so many different ways. Who, who do you say that I am? 
And remember, remember where they're sitting in this moment. They're surrounded by temples. They're surrounded by statues, but none of them are directed towards Jesus. There's no temple in his name. There's no statue in his name. But who do you say that I am? It's a much bigger question when they're sitting in the midst of all this diverted attention. And it makes what Peter is about to say such a big deal. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've heard this, you've read it, you've probably heard it taught on before. But Peter responds to Jesus' question. He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Messiah was a, a term that ancient Judaism used to point to our rescuer, the chosen one, the anointed one who will come and save us. Peter declares it, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And he says that on purpose because here they are surrounded by all these other quote unquote gods. And Peter in, in a sense is saying, look, those gods aren't real. Those gods aren't alive. There is one God and one creator here, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And you are his son sent by him. Jesus says, Peter, you're right, essentially. He says, you're right. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he says that this, this wasn't revealed by human effort. You didn't work your way into this. It was simply God's grace that revealed this to you. And then he wraps up this interaction by saying, and I tell you, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Remember that they're at the base of a massive rock, huge rock face. The cave is in the rock face. There's all these rock foundations that all these temples have been built on. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't need this rock. I'm not gonna build my church on that rock. I'm gonna build my rock on Peter's confession and Peter's declaration that I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God, his disciples are probably thinking to themselves in that moment, how are you gonna build a building on that, Jesus? How are you gonna build a building on that? But Jesus didn't need a physical foundation because he wasn't building a physical building. When he says that I'm gonna build my church, he's not talking about what often comes to our mind. When, when we hear church, when we hear church, we often think of a building. We think of this building, or we think of the church that we grew up in, or we think of the church that we drive past when we're on our way to work. Also, when we think of church, we think of church problems, potentially. If you're not a big fan of church, these definitely come to mind. You, you, here's a, just a couple of them. Church, ah, it's boring. Uh, it's not deep enough. You know, I want it to be more spiritual. I want, I want to hear something that makes me go, hmm. You know, traffic, we're going to go really quickly past this one. Okay. <laughs> There's all sorts, right? I get the emails. I could read them to you. Hey, here's the, here's the church problems, right? Here's what comes to mind when people think about church. And then if, if you're kind of outside the church, maybe you're watching today or someone invited you and you're not a fan of church, you, the, you might have bigger problems in mind when you think of the church. You may think of fame, the celebrity culture that gets built 
in churches. You may think of money, churches that raise a bunch of money. Uh, the church always wants my money. They're always talking about it. And then they end up spending it not on good, not to help people, but they end up spending it on lavish things and airplanes and all this stuff. You've seen the documentaries. You've seen, you know, all the crazy stories out there. You think about that. Or you think about manipulation. The people in the church, they have some sort of power. And then instead of using that power for good, they use it to manipulate people that are underneath them. And for the people that are underneath them, they're, they end up becoming victims because they're like, hey, I thought, I thought you were good and I thought you were leading me to a good place. I thought you had good intentions for me, but they didn't and they manipulated or misused their power. This is not what Jesus was talking about when he said he was gonna build his church. The Greek word actually means ekklesia, which means gathering or assembly or connection. Jesus was saying that the church he was gonna build would be a connection of people that were following him as the Messiah, the son of the living God. In the original tune that he played for his church, to say, this is what I want you to follow. This is what I want you to dance to, to move to, to go through life with. That original tune was one of love. It was one of respect. It was one of, hey, if, if, if you've got enemies in your life, you don't need to take revenge. You need to actually pray for them and love them. You need to care for the least of these. The people whose society has shut out Find a way to care for them and love them. So much of what we see in the church nowadays is, is a departure from that original tune that Jesus played when he launched his church. In fact, for the first 300 years of the church, these weren't even a possibility. There was no fame to be gained by following Jesus. There was certainly no money to be had. In fact, a lot of people lost whatever possessions they had because of the persecution the trials they went through. There was no power to manipulate, which makes it so extraordinary, so extraordinary that the church during these 300 years continued to grow and multiply. And then in the early 300s, the most important person in the world, the most powerful person in the world announced that he was a Christian. The Roman emperor, Byzantine emperor, Constantine, has this vision, this experience with God, and he becomes a believer. Now, we don't have time to unpack, uh, to unpack all of the implications of, of Constantine and his impact on the church, but suffice it to say, there was some good and there was some bad that came out of this. The good was it, it made Christianity legal. Up until that point, you had to be in hiding and, and the church went in and out of periods of pretty intense persecution. And when Constantine became a Christian, it ended a really long run of persecution that the church was under. That was good news. It made it safe to convene leaders of the church from all around the known world at that time to discuss major church issues that was not safe before. And, and it, all of a sudden it became safe. And that's where we get the councils that ultimately bring us our Bible today. So there was certainly a lot of positive. But unfortunately, it was also the first opportunity for these things right here. For the first time, the church could begin to get fame and leverage it in a certain way. All of a sudden, money was at play. Manipulation was at play. 
And it's been a complicated history ever since. But the original tune that Jesus played, the original church that he launched and invited us to be a part of never went away. Even when many people strayed away from it, even when it looked like the entire church strayed away from it, it didn't. And when we see the church played out in its original way, in an original form, it's beautiful. So that's what Jesus was talking about. When he said, Peter, on you, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. He was talking about the good, pure church. Following Jesus, loving our neighbors as ourselves, caring for those in our lives. That's what he said he was gonna build. And then look at what he said next. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, if you're anything like me, the church you grew up in, you know, if you grew up in church or you've heard someone teach on this before, oftentimes we say the gates of hell, don't we? And there's some translations that, that are translated gates of hell. And we think in our minds, we, we kind of conjure up images of this invisible, you know, the invisible eternal lake of fire. And we think of demons and people with pitchforks. And like when we say, oh, the gates of hell are not gonna overcome it. It makes us think, yes, like the hell, hell is not gonna overcome the church. But think about how that context changes when you know that where he took his disciples in that moment, where he was sitting in front of in that moment, was a place that was nicknamed the gates of Hades. Jesus wasn't talking about the eternal lake of fire overcoming his church or the demon or devils overcoming his church or the, the land of Mordor from Lord of the Rings conquering over the church. That's, that's what comes to mind for so many of us. He was saying all of this. He just pointed behind him and was like, look, all of this. This is not gonna overcome it. I'm gonna build my church and this is not gonna overcome it. And that word overcome in the Greek is kataskuo. It actually means the strength to prevail. When we see the word overcome, it makes it look like it's more of a fight, more of a one or the other. But what Jesus was saying in that moment is the gates of Hades, all this that you see, behind me right now, it will not have the strength to prevail. And my church will. Imagine what the disciples were thinking in that moment, what they were feeling in that moment. Like, really, Jesus? All this? These big buildings? Not one of them dedicated to you? Really? Like, I'm all for your church growing, but you're saying like your church is gonna grow and it's gonna have the strength to prevail and all of these massive temples, beautiful buildings, seems like it's real popular. Everybody's here and they're coming from all around to do the kind of the worship thing. It's not gonna have the strength to prevail. And little did they know what would happen in the days and the years and the decades to come. And if they were able to travel back to that very place today, this is what they would find.
a random column, all that's left of the rubble of the various temples. Now, this is, this is not a trick question, but how, how many of those temples do you think are in operation today? Pretty easy to guess that one. But do you know how many Christians, how many followers of Jesus, how many people that are a part of the, the ecclesia that Jesus predicted right here at Caesarea Philippi? Do you know how many of them go to this location every single week? And they go there to pay homage, not to the sacred goats or to Zeus or to Pan, but they go there to worship Jesus and to reflect on and think about this interaction that he had with his disciples. Do you know how many go? Thousands. Every single week. And as we stand here, sit here today, do you know how many people across the world identify as a Christian? Do you know how many people would say, hey, I'm a part of the ecclesia. I am following Jesus today. 2.18 billion. The gates of Hades did not have strength to prevail. Jesus's church, his ecclesia did. And he predicted that it would as he sat there with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Not long after that, he, he, He died on the cross and no one was a believer at that point. Everyone scattered and everyone said, well, we believed him for a while, but maybe he was just crazy. And then the resurrection happened and that launched the church and the church grew and it multiplied and thrived throughout the Roman empire, which was set against it and tried to squash it. And yet it continued to grow. Went through the dark ages, went through the enlightenment, modernity, post-modernity, and through it all, through it all, the beautiful tune of what Jesus introduced to the world and to his followers continued to survive and thrive. That gathering, that assembly that he invited his followers to in the first century, even though people departed from it at times, it never stopped. And what's amazing is not just what Jesus predicted here at Caesarea Philippi, but the fact that what he said there made it all the way around the world 2,000 years later to where you and I sit today. We get to continue that tune by being salt and light in our community, by loving our neighbors well, by forgiving those who wrong us, praying for our enemies, loving those who persecute us, caring for the least of these, and inviting all to know Jesus, the Messiah, the son of the living God in a personal and real way. We get to be a part of that. Jesus's prediction is continuing to be fulfilled at this church. And this happens in so many ways. Um, and we don't, we normally don't brag on things like this around here, but I just, I figured if you call Brownsbridge church your home, you would want to hear this. But over the last eight days, uh, we have had 31 people get baptized and go public with their faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. 
And this is between our student ministries and our children's ministries. Um, and I wanted to share one specific story with you. This, this is Hunter right here. And this is Wednesday night at our college gathering called The Living Room. And um, the guy baptizing Hunter is named Brad. He's on staff here. And get this, uh, Hunter is dating Brad's daughter. Okay? How many dads in here would love to baptize their daughter's son or their daughter's boyfriend? And how many of you would actually bring him back up out of the water? You know, that's more of the question, I think. Hunter lost his dad when he was seven years old. And uh, through his relationship with Brad's daughter, Haley, Brad has been able to be a father figure to Hunter. And then he got to be a part of this incredible step in Hunter's life Wednesday night. I wish that all of us could have been in there to experience it firsthand. But I wanted to read Hunter's story to you today. He said, before I placed my faith in Jesus, I was lost. I thought that no one could understand any of my pains or anxieties. After my dad passed when I was seven years old, I felt that I had lost everything and placed anger on the Lord. For a long time, I had no faith or concept of life after death. Everyone always told me from a young age that my dad was in a better place. I didn't have a clue what that really meant. In high school, I found myself more lost than ever before. I worked at Chick-fil-A where two friends had invited me to dive at Brownsbridge Church. It's something we do for our high schoolers on Wednesday night. From there, I joined an inside-out small group with a few school friends. Just a few weeks into a journey that I had no idea would even be possible, I was overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit and accepted Jesus as my Savior. Now, after placing my faith in Jesus, I have found peace in my earthly father's death. I now feel understood and fulfilled by Jesus. I no longer carry around overwhelming pain after accepting Jesus into my life. The emptiness inside me that I tried so hard for so long to fill has been filled with the incomprehensible love of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Jesus loves us more than we could ever imagine. He doesn't want us to feel alone. And if I could tell one thing about Jesus, I would say that he has made me the strongest I've ever been. His ultimate sacrifice on the cross has given me new hope and new life. I'd like to thank my girlfriend Haley for her invitation to church and my small group for helping me and supporting me along the way. And that's just one story. It's just one story. Now imagine if, if somehow magically we could take this story, Hunter's story, and travel back in time to Caesarea Philippi when Jesus has just told his disciples, hey, I'm gonna build my church. I'm gonna build my church on the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. The gates of Hades won't overcome it. And they're sitting there with all their questions and all their doubts and going, really, could it be? And imagine if we could show up and show them Hunter's story. Imagine if we, we showed up, we said, hey, we're, we're, from, we're from 2023. The year 2023. And this is happening. Can you imagine what they'd feel in that moment? Then imagine if we tried to tell them all the problems that we have with church. Imagine if we were like, well, okay, before you get too excited though, church can be a little boring sometimes. You know, before you get too excited, John, Simon, Peter, 
I just want to let you know there's traffic sometimes, okay? They wouldn't even hear us. All of our problems would be dust in the wind to them. They would be doubled over in joyous laughter saying, I can't believe it's true. What Jesus is saying right now in this moment, it's true. His church, he's going to build his church. And this place, all these temples, they're all going to be rubble. They're going to be forgotten about, except for the Christians who come here to celebrate what Jesus said on this very soil. Imagine how blown away they would be at what's going on today. That's what we get to be a part of. This is what we get to be a part of. The life change that happens when we follow the original tune that Jesus called his church to. When we give up our lives, love our enemies, surrender our will, and allow his love to reign in our life. If you call Brownsbridge home, you're a follower of Jesus and you're, you're here and you serve and you give, I just wanna say thank you. On behalf of Hunter, thank you. On behalf of the 30 other students and, and children and adults that got baptized over the last eight days, thank you. Over the, uh, the, the countless, countless people whose lives will be changed in the years ahead, thank you. You are a part of fulfilling what Jesus said he would do 2,000 years ago. And if you're here and, and you call this your church, but you're not giving, you're not serving, you're just here for the sermons and the songs, I just wanna challenge you today. You're on the sidelines. You're missing out. You could be playing a unique role that only you could play. And I know you've got your excuses. I know you've got your reasons. Everybody's got things, things in their lives that they can point to. But I'm calling you today, step off the sidelines. Jesus didn't, call his church, his followers, his ecclesia just to believe something. He called us to do something, to follow him with our lives. You have a role to play. Take a step today. And if you're not a Christian, someone invited you here today, watching online, this is the invitation. Once upon a land, Jesus of Nazareth, lived and he taught and he loved and he died and rose again to pay for the sins of the world. And he invited all men and women to follow him, to know God personally, to live a life of interaction with him. Not because of anything you've done or I've done, but by his grace alone, through faith in him, alone. That's the invitation today. And I would just encourage you, if you've never trusted God, if you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, make today the day. Make today the day that you look back and you go, you know what? That's when I made a decision. I'm leaving my always behind and I'm following Jesus with my life. When you do that, you get to experience firsthand what Jesus predicted to his disciples once upon a So what's God calling you to do today? What's he inviting you to do today? Let's pray together.
Father, it's extraordinary to look back through the centuries. And not just look back through the centuries, but look across the miles um, to a physical place that still exists today that you took your disciples to, Jesus. And you did that on purpose to teach them something very specific. Thank you for that today, that we could peer inside this interaction and be challenged today to continue to leverage our lives for you, but also to be encouraged today by what we get to be a part of when you invite us to be a part of your church. God, wherever we're at today, whatever journey we're on, whatever you're leading us to do, I pray you just make the next steps really, really clear. And then give us the power to take those steps. In Jesus' name. 